0: Hello, and welcome to Independent Clause, your anthropomorphic writing and literature podcast, Episode 9. No, it's okay. I know you hate it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. This time I want to jump right into beta reading and critique, thanks to the results of the poll on the official podcast Twitter feed. Uh, This is something that every writer looking to publish and any writer who wants to get better needs to learn. Giving good critique is a skill you'll develop over time, so what I'm going to offer up here is some fundamental advice on how to offer critique and some things you can look for. Also, I want to give you an idea of how I tend to beta read for other writers. First, if you aren't familiar with the term, a beta read is what you ask other people for after you've revised your first draft into something you think might be comfortable showing others. In software development, A beta test is when a company needs feedback from a wider group of users in order to find bugs or unintentional problems, or look for um, features that can be improved. Beta testers for video games, for example, will often report back on frame rate issues, slowdown, game crashes, control problems, etc. So it goes with your writing. Some rare geniuses probably can edit their own work enough to reach publication quality, but Most of us require extra sets of eyes. Those extra eyes will catch things we miss, uh, from structural problems to character motivation issues. Beta readers are worth their weight in at least gold, if not platinum or palladium or some rare earth metals. So a big question, how do you find beta readers? This is a perennial question asked of every writing panel and instruction group and writing podcast in the history of the furry fandom and probably beyond. It's a valid question, and it's not always easy. Often we writers can be an insular group and sometimes introverts, sometimes approaching people out of the blue and asking them to read your writing feels wrong somehow. But thanks to the miracle of the internet, There are lots of ways to help find helpful beta readers. First, I want to shout out to the Furry Writers Guild. They're a great resource for furry writing info, and whether you are a member or not, you can access the forums or the Slack chat. You'll probably find someone willing to give your story a beta read. Now, obviously, don't go thundering in and asking for beta reads as your first post. You're going to want to get to know people and let people get to know you a little. They'll want to know what you're writing, so they'll know whether or not it's something they feel they could critique. Another thing to bear in mind is that it's generally polite to offer quid pro quo for beta reading. I keep a little informal tally sheet myself, letting me know for whom I've done a beta. That way, when I need one, I know I stand a decent chance of being able to rely on someone. It's not always true. Sometimes people don't have time, and that's okay. You shouldn't expect everyone to be available all the time. Once you've found someone who's willing to beta read for you, they're your new best friend. Send them the document, tell them what kind of feedback you're looking for, if you have specific feedback you need, and how soon you need it back. As a general rule, the longer you allow, the better, but it is always best to set a deadline, even if a deadline is arbitrary. That'll help keep you on track and help keep the beta in the reader's mind. Also something to bear in mind, you'll hear a lot of us harp on and on about how you should get Word. That is, Microsoft Word. We do that because it's the de facto standard in publishing and allows for tracking of changes, as well as pretty robust comments. I cannot suggest highly enough that you invest in Word if you're going to write for publication. If you need to, it's it's not a cheap program, but if you need to you can get a yearly subscription to Office 365. And if you really want to work it out, find five writers to split the cost and you can have five separate installs and that way the cost comes down. I, if you're going to write for publication, you need to learn to love Word. Um, or to hate it less. I cannot stress enough that if you're going to use another word processor, whether that's Google Docs, Apple's Pages, or OpenOffice, LibreOffice, some of the others, like WordPerfect still exists, make sure beforehand that your reader can open that file and make sure that they know that if they're going to use comments, it's best if you use the same program. I mean, it's not like you're going to get someone who is already in possession of Word to go out and buy um, WordPerfect, but if you are working in LibreOffice and the person happens to have LibreOffice, then they can open it in that, and you'll be fine. There's a story told among editors, and I tell it often as a warning uh, of a very weighty novel that when edited, and then opened back up by the publisher, had spaces scattered throughout the document, due to a problem where LibreOffice would not read words comments correctly. And we're not talking about spaces in the sense of two spaces after a period. You can do a find and replace for space space and replace with space for that. This split words in half. That had to be fixed by hand. If your beta reader can't do inline comments because of a program incompatibility, the next best thing is a running commentary, possibly within the story itself in a different color typeface. Like, say, if they're writing in standard black, you use red to differentiate your comments. Alternatively, a person could type their commentary in a separate file or in the email response itself. I find that clunky and hard to work with. But in a pinch, in an emergency, or if you just can't work out some sort of software solution that works, anything is better than nothing. The critical thing is to communicate with your readers and make sure you're using the same text so you don't end up with that strangeness. Another thing you want to do when asking for a beta read is to make sure the reader is going to read for what you need them to look for. If it's a general critique, let them know if you want them to focus on a particular aspect, character motivation, word choice and flow, that kind of thing. Be sure you tell them. It will help them guide their feedback in a way that will be most helpful to you. Then, when you do this, make sure you don't ask leading questions. If you influence their view of the story before they've read it, the feedback will not be as genuine or as valuable in my experience. It's very possible... convince a person to tell you what you want to hear without them realizing that you've done it. Also note that if you want them to comment on issues of grammar or punctuation, a kind of granular editing, copy editing that's usually done before sending the story out to the publisher, let them know that. Because some people want to hear it and some people don't, and if you're one of the latter, it would behoove you to tell your reader as much. There's no sense creating tension where there need be none. So, you've sent your document off to your beta reader, or beta readers, ideally you have more than one, and have waited patiently. It has now come back, and you're ready to get going. Don't be nervous. The vast majority of people who will undertake a beta read are doing so because they genuinely want to help. They aren't here to tear you down. Take the critiques one at a time, looking at each comment or note as you come to it, If it's something you agree with, make a note of what to change. If you disagree, leave it alone, but mark it to come back after you've gone all the way through. Go all the way through, making changes when they're easy, making notes of things that need improving, and then look at whether or not those comments you set aside are something you agree with or that you wish to discard. Ideally, you'll have two or three sets of comments to work from. So if there's something that you disagree with in one, but two others don't note it as a problem... That can weight your decision. The same goes in the other direction. It might be a good idea to consider a change if two or all of your beta readers note the same thing. It's up to you. But remember, you sought out feedback in the first place for this reason. Ultimately, whether you accept or reject feedback given is up to you. You are the author. You aren't obligated to do so if you feel very strongly. But this is where a lot of authors fall down. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, kill your darlings. Some people misunderstand that. As writers, sometimes we don't know the things in our work that we want to keep because they work, or they're good, versus the things we want to keep because they're clever and we're proud of them, even if they hurt the story. As you get more experienced, you start to learn that line, and you'll get better at deciding which feedback to accept. But you're never going to be perfect. You'll always want that feedback, even if you don't always implement it. Now for the flip side, if you ask others to beta read for you, sooner or later you have to pay the piper and offer feedback to somebody else who needs it. And this is where I get on a little bit of a soapbox. Not that this entire podcast isn't a soapbox for me, but you know, here we are. When you're writing your comments on someone else's story, you owe it to them to be honest. However honest does not mean be mean or be snarky. There is always someone better than you. If you spend your time giving feedback, making snarky, hurtful remarks, not only are you going to lose potential critique partners, but you'll hurt your own reputation. Word spreads and negative stories spread faster than positive. That's just human nature. If a story is, in fact, too bad for you to get all the way through, that's okay. It happens. But consider these two comments. Quote, This story was so awful I couldn't finish it. Versus, Quote, So, I'm stopping here because I found a number of serious issues that you should look into correcting before I would consider it ready for beta reading. Unquote. One shuts a person down, possibly wrecking their self-esteem. And for what? Your own sense of superiority? You may be a better writer than them, but imagine if someone you looked up to and were finally brave enough to ask for help from laughed in your face and threw your hard work in the trash because you weren't on their level. How would you feel? If you're the average person, you're probably going to react angrily or you're going to be very, very hurt. Probably both. There's no reason to inflict harm on someone for the sake of quote-unquote brutal honesty. And yes, I actually had someone give me that as a piece of critique on a a story I sent them for for feedback. She said, Well, it sucked so bad I couldn't finish it. After that, I didn't write fiction outside of forum-based role-playing for over a decade. It wasn't until I found Furry that I even remotely thought I could start trying again. So remember, just like a doctor giving the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. But there are actually other parts of the Oath that I think adapt well to writers. Because if you think about it, beta readers might be thought of as story doctors. Like your family doctor, you bring your general issues to them, and then they refer you to a more in-depth surgeon, say, the editor, later. The parts of the oath I think most closely adapt are a couple of these. I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. And, of course, this awesome responsibility must be faced with great humbleness and awareness of my own frailty. So when you're giving critique, what do you look for? It can be daunting to try and comment on every aspect you find wrong with a person's manuscript. Well, first, if the person hasn't specified what they want you to critique, you might want to ask if there's anything in particular they want you to look for. I often fall into a trap of copy-editing as I beta-read, which some people appreciate and some people find incredibly tedious. If they want you to focus on story flow and you derail the entire critique because you're making notes about comma usage you're going to frustrate the author, and you're not going to give them the help they're asking you for. If a person doesn't specify what they're looking for, I look for story elements, primarily. Do characters have arcs? Are their motivations consistent? Do they have agency? That is, are they making choices that actually affect the flow of the story, or is the story carrying them along for the ride? Do things just happen, or do the characters' decisions matter? When you're looking at character agency, you have to also be sure that you're not mistaking a plot-driven story for one in which the character's actions don't matter. It's an easy pitfall to fall into, and it's one where reading a lot will help you learn to discern the difference. Story flow is something that's sticky and nebulous, and you have to negotiate that by feel. But one thing to look for is, are there sections where the story drags? Where does it slow down and does that feel deliberate? Do slow scenes overstay their welcome? Is a writer providing too many scenes when they could be summarizing to get to the next important bit? Summary versus scene is something that I struggle with that a lot of authors I know struggle with because you've you've got to tell all of these events and the reader must know why this happened. And then you can eventually learn where to condense things. I'm wordy enough as it is. I have a really hard time meeting the maximum word count for a lot of anthologies, and some anthologies allow me a couple of thousand words over, but I'm always struggling to try and improve that and get those numbers down while still telling a stronger and stronger story each time. Something you, as a beta reader, can look for also is theme. Does the author tackle a particular theme? If they do, you can sometimes help them bring it out more clearly for the reader. Sometimes you'll spot something thematic that the author missed, and by pointing it out, you can give them direction that their story might not have had otherwise. If you have any particular areas of specialized knowledge, you may be invaluable To someone if their story involves your particular expertise. If you were a firefighter or a police officer, for example, you can offer unique insight into the small details of a story if it involves those type of people. My personal philosophy is this. If something can be made correct in a story without breaking the flow of the narrative and without completely shutting down a writer's ability to actually put words on the page rather than go down the Google research hole, then it should be made correct. Often I get approached regarding guns, firearms, because I have a working knowledge of some types of firearms, and the author knows if they ask me, there's a good chance I'll catch anything that's especially egregiously wrong. The single biggest thing, and the one that I harp on relentlessly and many people harp on relentlessly do not ever have a character that allegedly knows what they're doing and is a trained firearms user refer to a magazine that is the thing that contains the cartridges what most people think of as bullets with a clip don't don't as a clip don't refer to a magazine as a clip if you do that you will find out quickly which of your readers are firearms enthusiasts. I literally threw a pulpy video game tie-in novel from a few years ago across the room and into the wall when this happened. This wasn't the only reason, but it was the final straw in a mediocre piece of writing. Now, you do have to be careful not to obsess over the small details at the expense of story, Of course, that's the Google research rabbit hole I talked about, which I am very prone to falling into. It's a balancing act. Other things you can spot are consistently misused words or phrases, mixed metaphors, just really anything you can spot, just so long as you're clear up front what the author wants you to focus on, if anything. Beta reading is a very different animal from an in-depth copy edit. Usually an author isn't looking for that when they ask you for a beta. In that vein, I try to only point out issues where I see glaring flaws, but as I said, I fall into the copy editor's trap too often doing beta reads, and I have to be clear if the author would prefer I not do that. Completely incorrect word usage, for example, such as when someone writes loathe, L-O-A-T-H-E, when they mean loath, which L-O-A-T-H, without the E. The former is a verb. The latter is an adjective. And this is one that even professional journalists mess up. I read it just the other day on CNN. And yes, before someone says it, language adapts and changes. But there is still correct and incorrect usage. When it's a simple mistake that isn't being corrected and not filling a linguistic niche, It needs to be corrected. So, yeah. (laughs) Copy editing is a difficult thing to teach in a podcast, and it isn't really the scope of this episode, but I don't want to leave without mentioning the Twitter horror show I witnessed recently. The author, Seanan McGuire, on Twitter, began commenting on a copy edit she received for a book that's on tight deadline. The edits were horrendous. And from the description seem to come from someone who only has a background in maybe academic or journalistic writing and certainly not fiction. When you're doing any kind of edit or beta read, it is important, as I've mentioned to maintain humility and to double check that what you're putting into the comments is correct, especially if it's a technical note. This editor, this quote unquote copy editor, began removing her usage of singular they and replacing it with gendered pronoun for a race for whom gender does not exist in her universe. They performed a global find and replace for the word which and changed all of them to that. They even edited one sentence at least without turning on track changes. Ms. McGuire would not have discovered it had it not been for pure luck. All of those edits became increasingly frustrating. They served to strip her work of its authorial intent as well as her personal style. When you're giving a critique with inline comments and the occasional fixed comma, there is one thing above all else before you even begin. Track changes must be turned on. This is, again, one major reason why so many of us tell writers, get Word. Word knows how to talk to Word documents about track changes and comments. Crossing between the various alternatives and free software, Word processors introduces the the change for errors that I mentioned earlier. Something Something I haven't mentioned directly before, but I want to mention now, is related to the the admonition that I gave you earlier about being nice and being kind in your critique, you can structure comments to come across as helpful, even, even if they are really strong negative criticism. It's a little bit of a psychological trick, but it works in theater and it works in writing it drains out a lot of the inherent bite that you can read into criticism that comes in text form if you can in your comments rather than making statements phrase the item in the form of a question obviously this sentence is clunky can't be made into a question but you could say instead this sentence feels clunky to me instantly you have clarified that this is your perception of the text and that you don't and you don't come across as if you're dictating the author's style to them. Another example is, he wouldn't do this. I would instead say, would this character do this? I feel as if we've been given a character shift for the sake of plot. Yes, being nice takes more time, but I cannot harp on it enough. Be nice. Even if you hate something, find the good in it. Be honest, but be polite and be encouraging. You're not here to tear someone down. If you want to do that, become an insult comedian. YouTube is waiting for your unique razor wit, I assure you. This becomes even more important if your writing group is one that meets in person. Most people do find it a little more difficult to look another author in the eye, laugh, and tell them their story sucks so bad that you couldn't finish reading it. When I was a student at RAR, I found the critique immensely valuable, not merely as commentary on the story being worked on, but because with six other people in the room, I was able to start to see patterns in the feedback very clearly. The way RAR treated its critique, and a way I very much recommend some variant of, was to give each other member of the group two minutes to speak their critique of a given story. The author was not permitted to speak or to respond during these critiques this focused our listening. It also forced the person giving the critique to prioritize what was most important. The returned manuscript comments were also given to the author, but the spoken critique had to cut to the very heart of the most important issues, and that's both good and bad. Something I haven't really talked about is, you should Definitely add in comments when you find things that work. When you find things you like in a story that work well, because if a critique is nothing but negative, it's going to be more poorly received. It's going to maybe hurt feelings, even if you don't intend it. Best to also include some positive things. Now, I don't, I don't subscribe to the strict compliment sandwich. Um, idea. And the compliment sandwich is where you, for every negative thing, you surround it by two positive comments. I think that's a little bit formulaic, but I think you should look for some positives and make sure you tell the author, no, you did this very well. I liked the way you did this. I think this works. And I think this was um, an amazing sentence. Just if, if you really believe it, don't make, don't make up positivity for the sake of it. But if you really believe it, do it. Put it in there. Let the author know how you liked a piece of their writing. Every aspect of writing comes back to read. Read widely and read frequently. You'll absorb by osmosis, probably, some of the things that work and some that don't, or at least you'll learn a visceral reaction that you can feel when something is good versus when something isn't. Grammar and punctuation rules... You can learn those on the fly. If you're uncertain of one, don't guess. Look it up. That's another thing that Ms. McGuire's copy editor did was removed all the semicolons she had used to break up her complex lists and replaced them with commas, which made the sentence completely unreadable because there were already commas. That proves to me that the copy editor assumed they knew the rules around semicolons, but they did not and didn't care to double-check them. And finally, I want to say that as an author, you'll learn how to do a lot of this to your own work if you dedicate the time, but even so, that will never remove the need for other people to have feedback on your work. Sometimes that ability to critique your own work can lead to overconfidence. Overconfidence is almost always a problem when it rears its head, but if you become someone who is overconfident and is a go-to writer for a publisher or someone whose work becomes immensely popular, it pays to keep this in mind. Memento Mori. Remember, Caesar, thou art mortal. I love J.K. Rowling. But in the latter Harry Potter novel, she became guilty of this. Now, I'm not sure if she told an editor no, or if an editor was too afraid of making cuts, or offering critique, but there were things that could have used a severe coat of polish. No piece of writing is perfect. No story is perfect in its first draft, its second draft, its final draft, or even in print. There will always be mistakes, things that could be done better. The line on a graph that represents perfection is asymptotic to the curve of quality. Quality can ramp up on a curve, and it can approach Infinitely close to perfection, but it will never intersect with it. Our job as beta readers and as editors is to help a story come as close as possible. Okay, that's about it for this episode. My apologies again for the lateness of it. With furthermore coming up very soon, uh, my number of spoons has dwindled and Combined with a hit of good old-fashioned depression, it became hard to focus on writing and podcasting and the convention. I do have a book to recommend this week. It is called The Writing and Critique Group Survival Guide by Becky Levine. It goes in-depth on various types of critique in a story, for example, critiquing for character or critiquing for scene structure. It's a very handy guide for the most common problems in each area, and also is a fantastic resource on giving and receiving feedback, and has a good amount of advice on forming writing groups. The other book I'd like to plug, and this is a plug, is the sci-fi horror anthology Bleak Horizons, just released from Fur Planet. I've got a story in there about Martian terraformers encountering a crashed ship and the creature inside it that begins to hunt them. My story aside, it's a really great anthology with some fantastic stories in it. If you like sci-fi and you like horror, it's worth your time to check out. And there have been some great examples in cinema of sci-fi horror. I mean, Alien is the classic haunted house in space movie, and we've got stories in here that evoke that. It's fantastic. It's available in print from furplanet.com or at the furplanet table at Whatever convention you happen to go to where they vend. And it's available in ebook form from maddogbooks.com. You can download it there in a format that works on any e reader or tablet. So if you want to go digital, it's a great resource for fairy literature. If you have comments or questions about a topic, please write to the podcast at podcast at chriswilliamsauthor.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at clausepodcast and I'm working on having pages for the show up on the various furry sites. When that happens, I'll send out a post via social media and announce it on the next show. It occurred to me that I have been a little bit lax in uh, informing uh, my listeners as to the source of my intro and outro music. It's by a musical artist named Lee Rosevear. They can be found on the Free Music Archive, and you'll find the... Uh, Links to that in the show notes as well. So, until next time, don't let anything, even lousy critique, stop you from writing.